Welcome back to the Dharma Toolkit podcast with me, Chandra Dasa. I'm here in the middle of a lovely week in New Hampshire, in the east coast of the United States, ready to have another great conversation with some friends in different places around the world about what matters most, which is really what this podcast is trying to reach for, a sense of community holding together what matters most at a pretty extraordinary time. Lots of us have very varying experiences of that challenge. But there is something about feeling connected to people, making an imaginative connection with others. And I hope the voices and stories that you hear with us are at least helping you stay connected to that community of Buddhist practice. This is into the second phase of our podcast. We've moved from doing them every day to focusing on specific themes. And today we've got a special edition in a way looking at something that's probably close to everybody's life at the moment, which is economics and the impact on our lives of the great upheaval that's going on with work and our ability to earn our livelihoods and to trust that that livelihood will be there in future, etc. You'll meet our special guest who's going to talk to us about that in a little minute. But first, I want to say hello to my co-host for today, our good friend Parami from Glasgow and dropping in, I think, with a particular interest in this conversation. Hello, Parami. How are you? Thanks, Chandradasa. Yes, I'm in Glasgow where the weather has been glorious, but today it's really quite grey and a bit miserable. But that's OK, because I'm happy to be here and chatting to two friends. This is probably the longest period I've ever spent in the wind place well for a very long time. And I'm actually quite enjoying it. So, yeah, I'm very interested. Our special guest, Vadika, not only a friend of mine, but I've always really enjoyed Vadika's thinking. And I very much enjoyed the book that he wrote a few years ago, which I think we're going to be hearing a bit more about. So I was delighted to be able to come and have a chat today with Vadika and Chandradasa. One of the best bits of my job is getting to rejoice in people when they show up for these podcasts as guests. And that's a nice little taster of what's fantastic about Vadika. Over the years, I've worked with a lot of audio. I've been involved with Free Buddhist Audio and a whole archive of Dharma Talks. And I can tell you that Vadika's Dharma Talks are some of the best Dharma Talks that you can listen to. They're genuinely exciting to listen to and you kind of listen to it and think I've just spent some good time I've heard a good mind engaging with things that are really important and usually with humor with a sense of brightness of spirit and of heart that really communicates in a way even more than the content does but the content is usually fantastic and I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Vadika to talk to us about all of his interests in this particular time and particularly about his book The Buddha on Wall Street which we'll hear quite a bit more about in the next little while. But first of all, welcome, Varika. Where are you? How are you? And how is your lockdown? Hi, Chandradasa and Parami. So I'm here in Tallinn in Estonia, where I've been living for over 15 years now. And for over two months now, I've basically been in self-isolation, although the state of emergency here finished, which means effectively we were returning more or less to normal. There's certain rules still in place, but basically returning to normal. So I've been mostly on my own, although we've been allowed to go for a walk every day. It's interesting that I've been going for a walk virtually every day to the nearest graveyard, <laughs> which is one of my favorite places in Tallinn. Really, really like the peacefulness and the variety of graves in that place. I've been working really hard on keeping our Sangha involved and keeping events going through Zoom and other facilities. There's this new word around now, which I was reading about yesterday, called the, not zombie, but Zoombie. And I am definitely feeling Zoombified at the moment. 
I'm glad that we're starting to come out of this. But basically, I'm well. Now, people listening to this who don't know you, Vatica, are probably going to detect that that is not an Estonian accent and that Estonia is not the place of your birth, etc. Do you want to tell us a little bit about where you come from and how you ended up in Estonia? So I'm basically from the north of England, from a family of shipyard workers, actually. I worked as an economist and a statistician and researcher for trade unions in Britain for a long time. And then in my mid-40s came across Buddhism. I didn't hit Buddhism until I was in my mid-40s, quite late in life, and very quickly got heavily involved. So Buddhism as offering a path forward for me, which combined not just the wish to help others and to change the world, but seeing also that I needed to work on myself at the same time, and that the two were inextricably linked. And I think that was what was missing in my life at that time. I got involved, first of all, in Sheffield, a Buddhist center there. And then I lived at the Padmaloka Retreat Center for men for six years, worked in Birmingham at the Birmingham Buddhist Center for a couple of years, and then was asked if I would move to Estonia to help for a year or two, where there was a center, but there was no order member. So I came for a year, maybe two years initially, and here I am 15 and a half years later and still struggling with the Estonian language, <laughs> going through Estonian lessons again. And I was going to say tearing my hair out, but I have no hair left at all now. <laughs> but if I did have hair, I'd be tearing it out trying to learn Estonian. But actually, a week and a half ago, I led through my first mindfulness of breathing meditation for our Sangha night in Estonian. I did preface it by asking people not to laugh too much when they heard my accent, but I said people were very positive. Yeah. I've been here for all that time, but although I still feel my heart is in the UK to a large extent as well, and I still feel a very, very strong set of connections all around the world because I've got friends all around the world. Before we get on to talk about your book specifically, Vatica, I'm just aware in this particular conversation with you two, Parame, that you both in a way have quite a strong politically left-leaning background in your former lives, as it were. And actually that's never gone away as a kind of important aspect of your approach to life, even with the Dharma, and it was strengthened in a particular way through the Dharma. I know that was one of your excitements about this conversation today, Parame, was <laughs> sort of chance of a good old lefty conversation with some like-minded people. And it's interesting hearing from Vatica about his family as working class men in the North. That's definitely our background too. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably one of the things that I felt bonded with Vatica when we first met in some of our conversations. You know, even just a little brief conversation at an order event or something, I definitely felt like a kindred spirit, somebody that had come from a similar background and saw the world through quite a similar lens. And politically speaking, you could probably say we were both on the left. I think that would be fair. But I think for me, it was as much to do with a sense of social justice and a sense that I was lucky I found the Dharma relatively young. I was in my 20s, 25. But even so, I never lost the sense that for me, part of my practice in the Dharma is to do with how can it change the world. I've never been that interested in personal development. I've had to work on the fact that I've needed personal development, but it's never really been my driving force, you know. I've always been really interested in how can we as practitioners and the values that we really care about 
be translated into something that has an effect in the world. You know, I've felt that's very much been Badika's approach. Would that be fair? Yes, I think so. Yeah. I think my instincts are still very much left of centre. I've been thinking about this quite a bit. Recently, I was writing to a friend explaining what I think of myself as. Because here in Estonia, of course, if you use the word socialist or communist, it has terrible connotations because they were occupied from early 1940s right the way through to 1991 by the Soviet Union. And they were oppressed by what they see as socialism and communism. And I try to say to them here that I think of myself as a particular kind of British socialist. And it comes from a free thinking with a very strong emphasis on free thinking British socialism that maybe had its strength and its roots in the 19th century and even earlier with movements like the levelers in the Middle Ages and so on. And that's my background. And I guess one of the reasons I became disillusioned with my particular background in left-wing politics was that I felt too constrained, too much put into a set route that I had to go down and that actually there wasn't enough space for free thinking and the genuine exploration of ideas in the pursuit of wanting to help other people. It's interesting when you come to a country like Estonia, whose history is totally different to that of Western Europe. So that when you look back, so let me give you an example. Recently in Europe, we celebrated VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. Well, in Estonia, what does that mark? It marks the start of the occupation of Estonia by the Soviet Union and the removal of political freedom. So it's a completely different world. And having to explore and deal with that and think about that and realize that in Eastern Europe and Central Europe, there's a very different historical perspective and historical and cultural background. And that, I think, has led me to be much more careful in thinking about political views and what they represent and how you might explain where you are coming from. Because you can't just use the usual Western European labels. People would be horrified. In this country, they would anyway. You know, that's very interesting. What I was remembering, thinking as you were speaking there, Vadika, is my family background is, as well as Catholic, it's communist. Yeah. My father was a member of the Communist Party. I grew up with that as quite a strong set of values. I was a member of the Young Communist League and then the Communist Party myself. But when I came across Buddhism, China had occupied Tibet. So I came across a very strong anti-communist discourse. And it made me think about the complexities of those things in my own rather naive and unsophisticated understanding of things. So, yeah, I think that's just a really interesting point. (laughs) Just as an aside, here in the UK, they weren't, particularly in England, they weren't talking about victory in Europe Day. They were talking about victory over Europe. Mm which was just a rather strange way of approaching. I think for me, partly, Vadika, what I've enjoyed about your approach and your talks and the book is that you do honour that complexity. They're not simplistic analyses, nor simplistically suggested solutions. I've appreciated that, yeah. It's interesting, Vadika, hearing you talk about that tradition of free thinking, socialism in Britain, 
come back to the levelers as you were saying. I've often, when I've heard you give Dharma talks, associated some of the quality of your thinking with figures like Milton and Blake, that radicalism, the deep radicalism underneath politics that's run through English culture for a long time. And I'm wondering about the transition you made from left-wing politics that you just described as being constraining in a certain way. Was the radical aspect of Buddhist practice part of what drew you in and met the need for a more expressive freedom of mind and imagination? And how does that lead you into the whole world of economics and writing about something that on the surface to a lot of people might seem quite abstracted from their experience? Or maybe if I return to the mid-1990s when I became a Buddhist, for 25 years of my adult life, I'd been heavily involved in economics in one form or another, economics and industrial relations. And then I shifted, I put my heart and soul into living a Buddhist life. And for, I think, 15 to 20 years, I really put myself into what I saw as quite a liberating approach deepening my knowledge of myself, deepening my knowledge of the Dharma, and going out to people in a very different way, working in a much smaller scale and not being so ambitious about being involved in huge campaigns or anything like that, being much more small scale. But then I felt this need to try and reconcile the two sides of myself. So half, first 25 years of my adult life, political activist, trade union activist, economist, statistician, so on. and then. 15 to 20 years, a Buddhist. How do the two go together? Can they go together? And it was out of that attempt to reconcile the two, to go back and revisit what is it that was valuable in the first part of my adult life, the first 25 years of my adult life, that I could incorporate into a more Buddhist view of the world and that might be of interest to Buddhists and to others. And maybe in a way... Certainly, I think when I was writing the book in 2014, there was not that much written combining those two perspectives of Buddhism and economics. There was stuff around, but not a lot. Not a lot. So if you like it, it was something I had to do myself to figure out what my life meant and where it might go forward from then. I don't know if that makes sense. I hope it does, yeah. It does. Maybe this is my particular background. John Milton keeps coming to mind, the idea of somebody with this kind of, I suppose, sensibility about reality that's been expressed through poetry on one side, on the other hand, being a pamphleteer and writing these radical pamphlets in the background that are actually, in a way, quite dangerous for him in terms yeah. of his life. And trying to marry those two, it seems like he forged something of iron out of the two of them, and that's had a lingering effect through history. Were you influenced in any of your early Buddhism by stuff like small is beautiful, you know, the 60s stuff that had a bit of Buddhist economics coming in that helped fuel the first wave of popular interest in the Dharma. Yeah, I was very much influenced by small is beautiful. That was a key text, if you like, for me. And I think I was already aware of it and influenced by it before I became a Buddhist. In my study of economics, there'd always been a bit of a radical edge in my study and presentation of economics, which kept getting me into trouble with orthodox economists. And I think that I'd always tried to bring stuff in that was not the usual theoretical model of economics. So John Maynard Keynes was a hero of mine. And I think individuals and their lives are very important, very important to me. And I think that's what I found in Buddhism, that I could see individuals whose lives and the lives they led were an example to me, and not just their writings, but how they lived their life. And John Maynard Keynes is a very good example from the 20th century. 
And what struck me was here I was in Estonia and I had contact with economists, people who worked at the Central Bank of Estonia and others. They didn't know anything about John Maynard Keynes because he wasn't taught in economic academic study anymore. This great figure had been lost sight of. And that historical background, bringing that in is very, very important. Very important. Because he wrote that tremendous pamphlet where he was looking ahead 100 years, what would the future bring for our grandchildren? Which was awe-inspiring when you read it. This was him writing, in, I think, in the 1930s. Awe-inspiring. What he could see and what he couldn't see. So that's your road into book on economics. And maybe we'll hear a little bit in time about how you see that now, five or six years later. But tell us something about the genesis of the book itself and you working with somebody else on the theory around it. I wrote the book mostly in 2014, but I'd actually been working on it for a couple of years before that. And it was published in 2015. But the background to it was that essentially... Since the 1980s, we had been living in a world dominated by neoliberalism, neoliberal economics, and the political views associated with that, starting with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. And what I realized was that the basic beliefs of neoliberalism were, if you like, that people are selfish, that greed is good, and that greed is the driving force of the economy and of growth. And spinning off from that central belief in the power of greed and selfishness were other views like government needs to get out of the way in order to allow the entrepreneurial spirit to flourish. So it's about how you reduce the size of government. And alongside that, of course, was globalization the transformation of the world economy so that it became dramatically more connected and all of the impact that that would have on people's lives so that you had all these trade barriers coming down. And I'll talk a little bit about the consequences of that in a moment. So that was the background. And even though a few years earlier in 2008, we'd gone through a tremendous financial collapse, an economic recession, around the world, neoliberal economic policies still maintained their hold and austerity, reductions in public expenditure and public services was still the order of the day. Those views dominated, those economic policies dominated. So what I set out to do in writing the book was to look at these basic beliefs and ask the question, are people basically selfish? Are they basically greedy? What does Buddhism have to say about this? And what I found in the book was that I was promoting the view that people are not, of course, basically selfish, that there is an altruistic side to people and there is an altruistic alternative to greed and selfishness. So it was about putting that basic case that there is an alternative approach. The Buddhist economics approach would be one way you acknowledge the selfishness and greed are there in people, but there is this very strong other side of altruism and kindness. And how do you encourage that? And how do you build an economic world around that? And so in the book, I tried to look at how neoliberal economics had affected many different aspects of our political, economic, social, 
and cultural lives and what might be then Buddhist alternatives within that. So I looked at the community, the decline of community, at the world of work, at the natural world and environment, at waste, at what I called the attention economy, which is really to do with the rise of the internet and the web and social media and so on, at inequality, at economic growth and what I called the happiness industry. And looking at each of those areas, I tried to present alternatives which bring in a Buddhist perspective. So the book was published in 2015. And then, of course, a year later, we had two absolutely huge hammer blows, if you like, into the way things normally are with, first of all, the vote in the UK in favor of leaving the European Union. Not everywhere in the UK, I know, but overall in the UK, there was this vote to leave the European Union. And of course, later in 2016, the election of Donald Trump as the president of the United States. And I think you can make a very strong argument that both of these events in 2016, Brexit and the election of Donald Trump, owed a great deal to the economic consequences of decades of neoliberalism in particular to reductions in public spending, reductions in the role of government, and of course to globalization and the devastating effect that that had over 20, 30, 40 years on many local economies. Now, having said that, I don't think that you can explain what happened in 2016 just totally by economic means, because there are many cultural factors at play. But of course, the economic and the cultural sides of things can't be completely separated. They interact very strongly. So there's a mixture of economic and cultural forces at work. But I do think that in addition to the economic forces that were at work, and you could see having the effect of Brexit and the election of Donald Trump, were cultural factors. So that what you had alongside these neoliberal economic policies was a dominant liberal cultural and social view of things that liberals took for granted. I count myself as a liberal, and I think I took it also for granted that this would be our view, my view, the view of others that I regarded as liberal would be the dominant view and would progress and would only gain ground in the future and so on. And there's quite a lot of research now that shows that these kinds of views about the assumption of liberal progress was very strongly there in the groups of people who did well out of neoliberal economic policies, who were in, if you like, protected jobs, managerial elites and so on. You had a social liberal thing. So one of the things I always remember was that it was a conservative government, a conservative government in the UK that promoted a lot of progressive liberal social policies alongside terrible policies of economic austerity. So you had this paradox. And what this meant was that you had large groups of people whose lives had been devastated by reductions in public expenditure, by globalization, who were left behind economically, who were really suffering. And not only that, who felt that they were looked down upon by people that they saw as the elite. And I think this was summed up for me, the famous occasion when Hillary Clinton called supporters of Donald Trump deplorables. What she did, I think, in that particular phrase was to dismiss people whose grievances 
needed to be understood. I feel quite strongly that many of us, and I include many Buddhists in this, did not appreciate and maybe still don't appreciate how much suffering is there amongst those people who voted for Brexit, who voted for Donald Trump. Real suffering lying behind those shifts. And this has been a process that's going on, this economic and cultural stuff. And now, of course, we have the pandemic. And it's as if everything has been thrown up in the air. Economic austerity, forget it. Forget it. We're all about expanding spending as much as we can, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Boris Johnson says, I don't want to mention this word austerity and so on. So out of necessity, there's a sudden reversal in the role of government. Government is essential to do things. Yeah, there was a lot in what you were saying that I could really resonate with and understand. I think I was one of the people that completely was baffled by both of those events, Brexit and Trump being elected, because on some deep little level of my little liberal heart, I could not believe that people would vote for that. And it was quite a shock. I think also following on the whole rise of populism over Europe and within the UK and in the States, I think is very much what you're talking about. People have felt very disenfranchised. They felt they haven't been listened to. And I think there's a really interesting question there and how you reach those people. And I think our Buddhist centres and our Buddhist setup doesn't necessarily reach the people that are likely to be feeling like that. So I was just interested in hearing that, even thinking before the pandemic, when we had a general election here in the UK in December of last year, it was extraordinary to watch what had been known as the Red Wall, the whole of the north of England, which had been Labour for 50, 60 years, suddenly voting for a party that had created austerity and that had actually created I think, a lot of the suffering that people there were experiencing. So I think it's a really fascinating phenomenon and really something that would be good to really be able to get inside. So I was interested in where you were going with some of that. And then, you know, the pandemic coming and how that's going to affect everything, partly in the pandemic, how we're responding, how governments are responding, and also post when we come out of this. I suppose there is a question that might come up for people who've had a cut, because that critique of the liberal complacency that might have led to or contributed to the election of Trump and Brexit, etc., that was well documented at the time. And of course, the experience of living with the consequences of that in some ways is quite deplorable watching the behaviour of the current administration in the US when you live here. It is difficult to understand, as Parmi was evoking, because not only are people voting against their interests in terms of specific policies, but sometimes, certainly from a US perspective, it's almost like the abstract ideas of freedom and what freedom means, etc., start to matter more than their experience. They'll vote for something that is really not good for them because there's an idea attached to it that there's value placed in. And that question of how does Buddhism talk to the non-rational side of human beings when they're under great pressure and they're suffering, and that starts to express itself politically. Not just through the pandemic, which is obviously our, our immediate experience, but in general, did you feel that you got to something in the book that was a viable path to touch into those kind of lives? Or are you still kind of thinking, well, how does this, how does this map? I don't think I did reach. I don't think I actually did fully engage with the issues that became, if you like, more obvious in the years following the publication of the book, and particularly how does one speak 
to those who clearly feel themselves left behind. And in some ways, it's still at the early stages of exploration for me. Perhaps I could tell you something that's had a really big effect upon me, understanding why it is that people vote in the way that they do, because it is an emotional and to some extent a rational thing as well. I don't know if you're aware of this. There's a book come out recently by Angus Deaton, and I can't remember his partner's name, somebody Case, called Deaths of Despair. Deaths of Despair. And it's based upon work that they've been doing for quite a few years now in the United States. And the genesis of this is that all the way through the 20th century, life expectancy for men and women has been increasing, particularly in the Western world. But in the last five to 10 years in the United States, it's gone into reverse. Life expectancy has been reducing. So they began to wonder, why is this? Because nobody was talking about it. When they examined it, what they found was it was predominantly non-college educated, working class, lower middle class men and women, but predominantly men in the United States whose lives had been turned upside down because of the economic consequences of globalization predominantly. And you couple that with the psychological effects of that total upheaval in the way that they lived their lives, because they'd always assumed that they had a good, secure job, and that had gone. And that impacted upon their status in their family, in their community, and so on. They start to get physical and mental pain, and you add into that the opioid crisis and so on, and then you start to get a clear indication of the deaths of despair. So that you have a whole set of people who quite legitimately feel that they're not even being recognized or spoken to. And they felt, I think, that Donald Trump in some way spoke to them. He acknowledged in some way their existence. This is, I suppose, partly speculation, but nobody was listening to them. If you look back at the democratic policies in the 2016 election, none of that is there. It's not really there. The same with Brexit. When the dominant line in Britain with Brexit to people was fear the economic consequences of leaving the European Union, when for many people they would look at this and listen to this and think, it can't get any worse than what we have been experiencing. You do not understand what we have been going through. So actually, I think it was quite an understandable emotional and rational response. And I think there's still a gap. Now, how as Buddhists we relate to that, I don't know. I mean, it would be very interesting, for example, to look at the areas most affected by the economic dislocation of globalization and reductions in public expenditure. And I wonder whether you would find many Buddhist centers of any tradition in the areas where you would find the greatest degree of economic dislocation. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing you won't actually find much in the way of presence of Buddhist centers an active Buddhist presence in those areas. And I don't have an easy answer to this, how one communicates with people in those situations. And I know how hard it is 
I witnessed attempts in South Yorkshire. People were trying to make connections in big council estates and so on. And it was hard work and not very successful. But there was a big issue there for us. Mm. Gosh, there's a lot in that. This feels like a whole series of podcasts we could have on this radical. As someone who lives in the US, I hear that and I understand it. And there is a certain bafflement still about what is rational and what is not rational, because even acknowledging the point you make about Trump, however cynically acknowledging people's suffering and turning that to his own political ends as part of a discourse, there is a certain bafflement people can feel when they see people voting for policies that are much worse versions of the things that have made their lives difficult. I suppose as Buddhists, when we're talking about this thing of how do we talk to it, never mind the, the political aspect of it. One thing that comes to mind is I grew up and was educated in a Jesuit school. And I remember one of the things I was most impressed by with some of the Jesuits was some of the young guys who were training for ordination in their tradition decided to go and set up a house in Castle Milk, which is one of the roughest housing estates in Europe, at least in the 1980s. And they didn't set up a Jesuit centre or you know anything like that. They literally got a house that was boarded up, a council house in this really rough estate and just set up house in it. And they got all the time. I remember them talking about the, the guys breaking through the roof and stuff like that. But they just befriended people and their job in a way was to live in the community at large and just in a way have an influence through friendship, through connection. And gradually, of course, they did. And they made a real difference to that community for the years that it lasted. In their particular tradition, eventually they got moved on, which was a particular way of doing religious, spiritual life, I suppose. But there is something, isn't there, about Buddhists gravitating to the nice parts of town and speaking to a kind of rational discourse all the time. People who are university educated or who are thinking about life in a particular way. And I think you're right, there is a big gap, isn't there, in terms of the beings who are suffering? Yeah, I agree. There's no easy answer in this area. There's no easy answer, I don't think. But it is something eventually that Buddhists have to grapple with because otherwise Buddhism will end up just being mostly for middle class people and it won't have any connection with working people and people who are more deprived. This is one of the things that I did talk about in the Buddha on Wall Street, but which I think has been highlighted even more now in recent years and with the pandemic which is the inequality in society, mm. how it manifests in different ways. How do we talk to those people who are on the negative end of inequality? I don't have an easy answer for it at all. Yeah, it's become quite clear, hasn't it, that the pandemic, to some extent, is hitting demographics, is hitting people more strongly where there is deprivation and poverty. For all sorts of quite obvious reasons, in a way, really, people aren't so healthy, maybe anyway. I mean, it's an area that I find really, really fascinating. And also, I get kind of nervous thinking about this and talking about this in the sense that I really do it when I come over as kind of patronising or something. And, you know, I'm from a very working class background myself. I still identify myself as working class, but actually, you know, I've got a university degree. I live in a very working class area in. Mary Hill in Glasgow. But, you know, I get food delivery sometimes from Waitrose, which is not a working class kind of shopping way of going about things. So, I mean, that's a slightly daffling, but I sometimes think we've talked here in Glasgow about doing classes in some of those very working class areas, like where I grew up and also and various places like that. And I don't, I don't want to do it where kind of like I'm riding in there to help the deprived kind of sense. I met the Dharma. I was still in that world in a way. and. 
it spoke really strongly to me and I don't doubt that it can speak to people across class and across culture and across economics but it's how to actually do that in a way that's genuine and really meets people where they are. I don't want to come across as a saviour of the working class either and yet I genuinely think there is an issue about how we teach and how we present the Dharma. Even the kind of examples that people use, you know, when you listen to talks and I do it myself, you know, I quote from Shakespeare or I quote from, you know, you've talked about Milton already today and Blake and, you know, for a lot of people, they just want to get the shopping and make sure they've got enough food on the table, you know. Anyway, sorry, that sounds a bit patronising as well. One of the things that was coming into my mind listening to you talking then was that When you look back historically, say into the early part of the 20th century, even right the way through, in my experience, to the 70s and 80s, was that in Britain, there was a very strong tradition of working class education. So you had the Workers' Educational Association. You had the 1930s, you had book clubs that were enormously popular and so on that probably helped found the spirit of radicalism that came through at the end of the Second World War in the UK. And of course, you had institutions like trade unions and so on, which allowed people to come together. So there was a culture of collective discussion in some form or other. My sense of it now is that it's very atomized. Mm. Except, except that, again, when I've been reading, for example, about places in the United States in the last three or four years, towns where significant numbers of people voted for Trump and equal numbers of people voted against Trump, and where there's a very strong sense of local identity. And that very strong sense of local identity has been maintained. People have stayed friends, people have worked together, they help each other and so on. And that I find really interesting. And I find that actually a sign of hope that there is potentially at local community level possibilities there for the development of more community-based political attitudes and so on. And I think this is one of the things that is coming through reading about the impact of the pandemic, that you get this very strong sense of local community, even national community, of people at a certain level feeling a kind of bonding, and at a very local level, people wanting to help each other. So these are very strong signs. It's not quite the same as what I think used to exist in the past, which was more of this discussion groups and things. So when you look back in history, if you read about the Second World War, in the last year or two years of the Second World War, in the British Army, there were compulsory adult education discussion sessions for everybody, every week. And it was a part of your normal life in the army to do that. And that kind of spirit. So I don't know what exists now in the UK. I've not been in the UK for a long time, and I don't know what exists in the United States. But these traditions of more local educational discussion groups, and stuff, because there are people, there are individuals who are interested. You were talking about Shakespeare and Milton and so on. But actually, you know, my experience living on a working class estate in Dundee in the early 1970s was there were actually a surprising number of people who saw themselves as intellectuals. They were. And they were interested in ideas and study and literature. Maybe that's a way in for us. Yeah. You mentioned the workers, the W.E. 
Was it WEA? Yeah. I mean, my father was a fabulous, he really believed in the workers' educational. He did quite a few things in that. And I remember that even as a kid. So yeah, it's true, actually, that it's not quite so cut and dried, is it? Is that? One of the things I've been most impressed by in the US, Farika, is the amount of stuff that is happening at the level of community organising. Mm. Whatever people think of Barack Obama, when you remember the attacks on Obama when he was first elected were all to do with denigrating his community organising background as not being a training in proper leadership. And what I find quite interesting at the moment is his post-presidential foundation is completely focused on community organising. They're almost totally absent and are quite criticised for being absent from the mainstream political discourse. And I don't think that's just because he's an ex-president and there's all the etiquette of not criticising sitting presidents, etc. I think a lot of it is to do with an experiential thing where if you're on the south side of Chicago and you're in very poor black neighbourhoods, the best thing you can do is identify the people in the community who want to raise each other up and want to do training and leadership that will lead to a different community in the future. And then doing that at scale community makes a society and a society makes a body politic, that sort of idea. I'm sure there's plenty of discussion to be had about how effective that can be, but I've been quite impressed at watching the hopefulness of just offering young people a training in leadership and community and saying, actually, forget all that other stuff that's going on that's distracting. This is how the world will be based in 20 or 30 years' time. You'll be in charge. And that seems to me like at least a practical kind of hope that you can offer people economically. Yeah, one of the things that's also been fascinating with the pandemic is the community response to that. I know it happened in all of the four nations, but here in Scotland, they opened up a volunteer website. It crashed in the first half hour or something because so many people tried to to sign up. So I registered as a volunteer. I got an email saying, we'll get in touch with you. And it took ages. And I don't think it was because of incompetence. I think it was because of the numbers of people who just volunteered to do all sorts of things. And I find that very hopeful. That's sort of across class and across education it's just people looking out for each other so that's been one positive thing I guess yeah I mean there's all sorts of things that are coming into my mind out of that the whole idea of the economy of well-being and the kind of new green future new green economy and all those sort of things that I want to hear Badika talking about but I don't know if we're going to manage that maybe we need another podcast I think what we're going to do actually is split this into two episodes. So yeah. I think we could do a pre-pandemic and post-pandemic episode that would stand alone, more or less, in terms of how the conversation's gone. So it's fine to keep talking for longer. I'd be happy to hear whatever response you've got to that, Vadika. The point Parmi just made about well-being. It's quite interesting to contrast well-being with the welfare state. Okay.